Jesus in the world. A great example of this is that in Glasgow, there was this Iranian man that moved there and was living in this government housing. And, and one of our CA families said, we want you to come and stay with us. He ended up living with them for a year. And in the context of that year, he saw uh, the values of Christ's kingdom lived out in this home day by day by day. Regardless of his previous definition or thought about church, that convinced him that following Jesus was the real deal. That, to me, is what church planting is about. That, that's why I'm a part of this. Wherever you find CA churches or staff involved, you're going to see them forming faith communities that have the specific purpose of thinking, caring, and acting like Jesus in their world. And we believe that has transformational impact in the cities, neighborhoods, and cultures where they live. Our movement extends across global regions of Central and Eastern Europe, Western Europe, North America, and Latin America. It's not just about getting on a plane and moving to a different culture or context. Ultimately, it's about living out right where you are the same values of the kingdom that you would find people in the body of Christ wanting to live out in every city and culture of the world. Do you want to be a part of a dynamic missional movement in the world? And we've got people from over 20 different nations, even a few Americans, dashed in with all these British and Dutch and French and Uruguayan and Brazilian believers. We don't really know what all it's going to look like as we go into the future, but we do know this. It will think it will care and it will act like Jesus did when he was on earth. We invite you to join the movement. Cool. Thanks, Remington. Appreciate you guys doing that. So I've talked a little bit about my neighborhood and the houses on our street. Uh, but clearly, I don't always get it right. So this guy down the street named Mike. Uh, Mike is uh, six foot six, 270 pounds, burly man, manly man, hairy man. And I, I know I'm not, you know, I mean, this guy, you know, could hammer me through a, a board with his bare hands. I mean, he's, he's just that kind of a, a dude. And he intimidates me because um, he's involved in construction and heavy lifting and sweating and, you know, he does all these things that are just impressive. And I talk. I mean, that's kind of what I do. You know, I go around, I meet with people, and I ask questions, and I listen, and they ask questions, and I talk. And that's kind of my job. So I don't really feel very masculine around Mike. Um, and Mike kind of plays to that. So, you know, he, he, you know he'll ask things like, let me see those hands. You know, showing my hands, he's like, like paper, man. What are you doing with your life? You know, he's just making fun of me. So I, I avoid Mike because when I'm around Mike, I don't feel like much of anything. And, you know, I see him and I, I might actually wave at him, but I'm not going to approach him to have a conversation. Well, over winter this last year, uh, Mike slipped and fell on the ice and um, ended up hit his head and went to the hospital. And, uh, you know, word had spread around our street that Mike was in the hospital. He had a bad fall. And um, I was thinking, you know, I should go by and see him 
And I, I put it off a day because, you know, I didn't want to go, even, even laying in a hospital, he's more, you know, burly and manly than me and could probably still pin me, you know, so I didn't want to be around him and have him just reach over with his hand and like trap me, you know, so I, you know, I, I just put it off. I didn't, I didn't go see him. Three days later, he slipped into a coma and then he died. He's gone. Opportunity lost. I, I know that guy was far as from Jesus as you can get. Here's what I want you to know from that. My failure to invest in his life was not a failure of strategy. My, my failure to invest in his life was not a failure of knowledge or a failure of a good gospel presentation. My failure in Mike's life was a failure of maturity. Not about knowledge, not about information, not about strategy, not about gospel presentation that I memorized, none of that. You know what kept me from investing in Mike's life? Was the insecurity that I felt around him. And now that opportunity is gone. I wish there was some like kind of a cool way to end that story of God redeeming it. There's not. That's just the hard reality of life. Sometimes there's just not a good ending to a story. The only takeaway I can have is that I have to keep growing up in my faith. And that's the message I want to bring to you this morning, is that the integrated life, if you think of your faith through all dimensions, through relationships, through school, through your apartment or dorm, if you think about it through your activities and your hobbies and your interests, if you integrate your faith into all those arenas of your life, dating, friendship, hanging out, whatever it is, then that becomes a crucible for your discipleship. That is a, that's a, a, a kiln that fires out the immaturity. But I want you to hear this as well, that the invested life is the way that you grow up in faith. We had a conversation last night about, about church membership, and I tried to clarify something that may still be really fuzzy. I'm not really that interested in whether you can join a church as a member. Here's what that really means. Have you agreed to covenant with others to share life in the pursuit of Christ and growing toward maturity? That's actually a much higher bar than just church membership. Because when you covenant with somebody, you say, we are in this thing together. And I need you to help me grow up in my faith. And you need me to help you grow up in your faith. And we're going to choose to live together in a committed faith fellowship in a way that if you start going off the rails, I have permission to say, I love you and I'm worried about you. And if I start going off the rails, you come to me in covenant relationship and say, I love you and I'm worried about you. And if I respond defensively to that, that's between me and the Lord, not me and you. I, I, I'm convinced the more I grow up in my faith that the investment of life in others is the pathway towards spiritual maturity. And here's what's disturbing to me. You ready for this? What's disturbing for me 
is when my non-Christian friends act in ways that are more like Jesus than I do. Do you think that only believers can influence your faith and your maturity in Christ? No. In my world, some of my non-Christian friends model the way of a generous life. I have some minimalist friends. Is it what they're, I mean, they're kind of hipster minimalist. They, just, they live on as little as possible. And they give away everything else. Uh, I don't do that. It's really instructive in growing up in my faith when they live more of an austere lifestyle that looks a little bit more like Jesus than the way that he handled and stewarded possessions than I do. That happens when we invest in each other and choose to walk this journey of life together. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1 because there's this concept of growing up or maturity that actually has some pretty cool language around it. While you're doing that, let me just ask uh, Ryan a question about your ongoing relationship with Sloan. Love your testimony. And I love that Sloan had that gospel appointment with you and that God had been preparing you through that journey of darkness, really, to be ready to hear the message of light. Did your relationship with Sloan end when, that, when you said yes to Jesus? It kept going. How would you describe his influence on you in the direction of maturing in your faith? Would you describe it as an investment in your life? Or how do how you describe your relationship with Sloan now? Yeah, it's definitely like a, Why don't you stand up and so I can hear you too? Yeah, definitely like an um, invested, he definitely invested his life, in, uh, you know, just you know, through teaching, through, you know, just kind of you know, joking around, whatever, you know. It's also like, you know, serious, um, you know, conversation uh, week to week. And also, you know, throughout the week, it's just kind of, you know, just normal, you know, friend, friend to friend relationship. So you, you guys get together outside of just an appointment to meet, yep. hang out together, goofing around. Do you see things in Sloan's life outside of an appointment that help you grow up in your faith? Like, do you see him behave in ways that you think, I want to be like that? This is what I'm talking, thank you, I appreciate that, Ryan. So the, the invested life is this idea that it's more than just an appointment, but it's more, it, it is that and more. I, I'm not bad-mouthing getting together for discipleship appointments at all. I'm just saying that the pathway to maturity is more than that. In addition to that, seeing people in real time, in real life, respond in real ways that reflect the character of Christ. And I think that's what we see in the, the invested life. It's a pathway to maturity. In James, we see a response or a, 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 in essence, a catalyst for what it takes to grow up in our faith. James 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith will yield endurance. And let that endurance have its perfect result, that you would be mature, mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Now, hidden in this passage is the Greek word dokume, or what we translate as character. 
the character of Christ that is the, 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 the springboard for maturity, that you would be mature and complete and lacking in nothing, but there is something that forms Christ-like character. And, and I'm wondering if you can find the word character in those verses. Let me say them again, and you listen for what might be the word character. Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith will yield endurance, and let that endurance have its perfect result, that you would be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Where is the word that's also translated as character in that? Got any ideas? Mature? That's the logical one, because maturity and character ought to go hand in hand. But that's not it. That's, that's the perfect guess. That's another great guess, because you would think character and endurance are tied together. The word in Scripture that's translated for Christ-like character in this verse is translated the testing of your faith. Knowing that the testing of your faith will lead to endurance that leads to maturity in your faith. What is godly character? Let me describe it this way. Godly character is not what you know. It's not the verse that you memorized. It's not the information that you've gained. It is the testing of that information. It's that moment when you, have, you take what you learned about forgiveness and now you're talking to somebody who deeply offended you. The testing of your faith will yield either godly character to be able to forgive them or not. You can say all you want about your love for Jesus or your faith in him. But what reveals that faith is when it's tested and you respond in a way that's Christ-like. That may actually be counterintuitive to the way the world responds. That is the pathway to maturity and growing up. And I believe that happens best when our lives are invested in one another. Most everything, most everything that's come to fruition in my spiritual journey has not come through my study of God's word. It's come through the application of God's word in community, living it out, testing it, proving it to be true. That's the word character. Consider it joy when you encounter trials, hardship, struggles, tensions, conflicts, things that you would not want to have going on, the stuff that comes your way that you're saying, uh, how do I get out of this? Don't try to get out of it. Try to learn through it. Consider it joy when you encounter these things, knowing this, that it is those things that yield Christ-like character, and that leads into a pathway of maturity. What I'd like to do this morning is change teaching styles on you a little bit, and I want to share with you a few stories that are reflective of those struggles and trials in my life, and I'm going to adopt a little bit of a different cultural style on this, all right? So imagine that this tent is now not a sanctuary, but it's actually a 
massive teepee because I am a card-carrying member of the Cherokee Nation. Any other Cherokees in the room? Anybody else Cherokee heritage? Really? Woohoo! That is so awesome. It's great. Well, my daughters just got their Cherokee membership cards too, which is fun. So I went to my first Cherokee family reunion as a junior in high school. I was 16 years old. I was so excited. We were going to the reservation in Oklahoma, Cherokee family reunion. I'm thinking, you know, teepees everywhere and tomahawk throwing competitions, you know, guys walking around with scalps, you know. I, did, I had this whole image in my head, you know, of this, you know, this rain dances and woo, you know, and beating drums. I was so jacked up about this. I get to this Cherokee family reunion. I have never seen more redheaded, blue-eyed people in my life. I mean, it was crazy. It was like I walked into an Irish festival, you know, <laughs> drinking Guinness and, you know, sitting around, I ain't making, you know, just like they're talking like pirates, you know. I'm like, what? This is nothing. No, it, it wasn't that bad. But I will tell you this, I was really blown away by the fact that our Cherokee family reunion looked more like the Irish gathering because the Irish immigrants came over and intermarried with the working class Native Americans. And so in our particular family strain of Cherokee, it's no surprising that both of my teenage daughters are redheaded, blue-eyed Cherokees. And it's just kind of one of those funny things. Well, I've been learning about the Native American culture, and they have a teaching style that I've come to love and appreciate. And this is what it is. It's storytelling without telling you the point. Storytelling without giving you the answer. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to share with you a couple of stories where God used these as the testing of my faith. And then I'm not going to tell you what you should learn from that. You're going to turn to some people around you and say, what can we learn from that? Okay? So that makes sense? This is actually requiring you to engage in the learning process this morning. All right. So here we go. First story, I'm just going to call this one the uh, desert place. So um, I was always excited about being a husband, but I was even more excited about being a dad. Is that okay to say that? So uh, I love the idea of being married and loving someone, and yeah, I'm all for that. But I grew up wanting to be a dad, and the marriage thing was kind of the prerequisite. So you have to kind of focus on the... <laughs> marriage and the dating and all that. But, you know, eventually it's like, can we have kids now? Because we kind of, I'm really need to be a dad, you know. And um, Laura was, uh, she knew this. I uh, wasn't like sandbagging or anything. I, I told her up front, you know. And um, so we decided together to wait for a few years before we tried to have kids. And when we started to have children, um, we found out that that was a problem. So, um, at that point, I was working in campus ministry at Baylor and traveling and doing things like this about twice a month. So two weekends a month, I was gone from home. And in the summer, I'd be gone for six or seven weeks at a time. And here I was on the road whenever each month, Laura would find out that she wasn't pregnant again. And it was the most brutal emotional roller coaster that you can imagine. Now, we had a student leadership team around us running the campus ministry, like some of you guys are part of your campus ministry leadership. But they were your age. And so we didn't tell them about our struggle because we figured that they didn't really know how to relate to that. They weren't 
dating, much less married, much less having trouble getting pregnant and having children. So it became a very private um, desert place. Here's what made it worse. Laura, my wife, was working in guest services in a hospital, and labor and delivery was one of her areas to service for customers. So day after day, she would go to work and see even, at times, teenage girls that had children that didn't really want them. Um, they'd be laying in bed watching cartoons, and their newborn baby is here crying in the bassinet because they weren't really that interested in having a baby in the first place. And Laura would come home from those days just devastated. And typically, I'd be on the road when that happened. So here I am going to places like this to talk about a God that I don't even like. I'm out doing ministry in his name and for his kingdom's sake, and he's not allowing us to have a child? Why? I got increasingly angry at God. In fact, I will, I'll tell you this. It's the first time I ever in my life deemed something as potentially spiritual prostitution. That's a really crappy feeling. And that, here's what it sounds like. The only reason I'm here speaking at your event is because you're paying me. But I don't want to be here. And number two, I don't even like the God I'm getting ready to tell you about. That's a really horrible feeling. That's a transactional view of God. So here I was doing all these things for God, therefore God should do these things for me. And that's not how God works. I didn't know that at the time. So the worst day of the year for a mom who can't get pregnant is Mother's Day. Because everybody's celebrating having babies, except the wife who's not having a baby. And um, it's kind of a funny ritual at churches, you know, where they have, they give away roses, they have the recognitions, you know, the mom with the most number of kids, the oldest mother. Um, it, and it gets kind of awkward at times because they do the youngest mother, you know, doesn't always work out great. And it's just kind of, a, just kind of awkward moments, you know, like, oh, well, that 14-year-old didn't really maybe want to get pregnant, but okay, so we're going to give her a rose and we'll bless you. And, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. So Laura and I wouldn't go to church on Mother's Day. Well, the student leaders of our ministry decided to throw a party for Laura for Mother's Day because she'd been a spiritual influence as she invested in their life. They wanted to bless her in return a really beautiful gesture. So we're gathered in our little house in Waco, Texas, in the living room, and they are basically uh, thanking Laura and having a Mother's Day party for her saying, you've been a spiritual mother in our lives. That's when we told them that we were pregnant. Now, the piece I left out of this is that eventually we said, we can't keep this back from our student leaders. They've got to know what's going on. So we began to tell them about our emotional journey. And that introduced them to a struggle, the trial of this kind. If they had never known that we were struggling to get pregnant and we told them at the party, they would have said, congratulations. But because we invited them into our struggle. They threw this party for Laura, and when we told them that we were pregnant, 
I have never seen a more spontaneous party erupt in my life. These men and women your age ran around our house, jumped over the furniture, threw things in the air. It was a huge party. What do you learn about the invested life in inviting people into your struggle from that story? What do you learn about the value of inviting people into your struggle from that story? All right, turn to the folks around you and you got uh, two or three minutes to just kind of share some ideas about what you might learn from that. Go. Okay, let's come back together. I'd like to hear your ideas. Um, what are some of the things you might learn about the invested life from, um, from that story? Anything that comes to mind? What do you think? Wow, that's good. They saw us choose a different path and saw it play out in our lives. Yeah, not a path that led to bitterness, but uh, one that led to maturity. Yep. Kindness and support. Yes. Yeah, why is that valuable for maturity? Yep. In a Christian culture, there's a pressure to present that things are good. Things aren't always good. And the support that you get from one another is the pathway to maturity. That's great. Giving and receiving it. Somebody else? Yep. When you invite people into your, your struggles, you're inviting them to um, kind of intercede on your behalf and then, and then they kind of have some skin in the game, you know? And then so when things turn out, however they turn out, they're able to celebrate with you did you hear that? I wrote in my journal that night when I went to bed after that party, if we invite people to share in our struggle, we enable them to share in our joy. That's, that, that's what he just said. So I get to repeat mine, not break Cherokee tradition because he said it first, but <laughs> that's exactly right. If we hadn't invited them into the struggle and we said we're pregnant, then they would have gone, well, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. And how if you bring them into your struggle, they'll bring you into their struggle. That's right. And walk together. It becomes mutual. When you invite someone into your struggle, then they're more likely to invite you into theirs and, and allow for the beauty of the body of Christ to come forward, that we support each other. You guys are right on track with this. I mean, this is, this is the kind of learning of, of the invested life leading to maturity. Let's go to story number two. So the second one, I would just call the hungry friend. So I was living in the United Kingdom in Western England, not far from the border of Wales. I'd gone through a lot of evangelism training in college and was going out to share my faith on the street uh, just with anyone who would listen. Came across a homeless kid. I think he was probably 20, 21 at the time. The name was Ian. And Ian was sitting um, kind of under a shelter on one side of the street, just kind of looking at, he wasn't panhandling, he was just sitting there. And I sat down next to Ian and started into my gospel presentation. You know, I was really crafty at how to, 
go from, hey, how you doing, what's going on, to let me tell you about Jesus. So I worked the whole conversation around to Jesus, and Ian was just not paying attention. It was driving me crazy. I'm like, I'm giving him my best stuff here, you know, and I'm pulling out, you know, some good questions, and he's just staring. Total, and I didn't know if he was on drugs or what the deal was. Finally, I just stopped talking, and I looked where he was looking, and he was staring at a fish and chip shop. Now, I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. So, you know, the Lord hits me over the head with a board, and I say to Ian, how, how long has it been since you've eaten? And he said, it's been a couple of days. And I said, I'm really sorry. Let's get some food. So we went over and got fish and chips and came back to the same place and sat down. And I just sat there eating beside him. Halfway through his meal, he said, what were you saying about God again? And we had our first faith conversation. Over the rest of my time there, I had the chance to invest in Ian's life. He didn't accept Jesus while I was there. Um, and he's since died. So I don't know if you ever came to know Christ or not. But that encounter with a hungry friend taught me something about maturity around gospel presentation. What would it teach you? What can you learn about a mature perspective on sharing the gospel? Okay, talk with your friends. Okay, tell me what you would learn from that as you share the gospel what might you learn from my encounter with Ian? Yeah. You can do a Christ-like action to have a Christ-like conversation. You do a Christ-like action in order to create a Christ-like conversation. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. Yes. When you saw that he was hungry, you kind of shifted from seeing him as a project to seeing him as a human being. Nobody likes to feel like a project. Like your only interest in them is their self-interest. Uh, seeing his hunger was to see him as a human in need. Yep, somebody else? I thought there was another hand right back here. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's same thing. Okay, cool. From project to person. Yeah. What about over here? Yeah, the leadership of the Spirit still matters, you know, and how you alter the, your plan, you know, as you move into these conversations with people. I agree. Yeah. Yes. I was frustrated he wasn't paying attention to me. But who's the one that wasn't paying attention? Me. <laughs> yeah. From James 2 to your point, what good is it, my brothers, if a person claims to have faith but has no action or deeds? Can that faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, well, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, 
but does nothing to meet the physical needs, what good is that faith? Excellent. Okay, yep, one more here. It's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having a program for sharing the gospel, but ultimately that synapse is personal. Don't let your program get in the way of investing personally in someone's life. Because you've shared great insights, again, I, 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 at the after you share yours, I'll, I'll share mine. That night I wrote in my journal the phrase as simple as this, a hungry stomach has no ears. And, and I love your takeaways from it as much as that. Um, but it's paying attention to those, the personal nature of investing in someone's life. And then he got curious and said, what were you saying about God? Story number three. Um, so when I graduated from Baylor with my master's in counseling, I went to work for a residential youth home in Missouri and was uh, counseling at-risk teenagers and their parents. Um, And the founder there was a spiritual father figure to me, a guy named Richard. Richard um, saw leadership potential in me more than just in the counseling room, but over nonprofit leadership. So he began to teach me about nonprofit leadership. And I'll forever be grateful to him. Well, 15 years later, Richard was struggling with cancer and the kind of cancer that you don't know whether you're going to recover from or not. So he felt the need to hire a successor. So he hired me. I mean, this was my dream job come true to be, to follow the founder, to be the next president of this, this counseling ministry that really was altering families' lives in powerful ways. So it was a dream job for 15 years, and then he offered it to me, and I took it. Well, about eight months into having that dream job, Richard's cancer went into remission. Praise God. I mean, we we celebrated that. But he and I went to a breakfast one morning at the original Pancake House, one of my favorite spots to have breakfast at. And as my steaming hot plate-sized pancakes came out with butter dripping off of it and pouring the, the warm maple syrup on it, Richard says, I think we need to unwind our relationship. And I looked up and I said, you don't want to be my friend? He's like, no, I'm talking about our work relationship. And I said, you're quitting? He said, no. (laughs) He said, I'm firing you. I went, what? You're firing me? Can you do that? He's like, yeah, I'm the founder. I hired you. I could fire you. I pushed my pancakes away. I haven't been back since. It like ruined my whole love of the old pancake house. I'm like, oh, I can't ever eat them again. It's like this taste aversion. If I see those pancakes, I'm like, I'm going to get fired. (laughs) Okay, so since then, there is a story of reconciliation, but I have to tell you this. That was another major story of wipeout in my spiritual journey. I did not respond well to getting fired from my dream job. I, was, I looked for everybody to blame. I blamed Richard first and foremost 
because he never even told me this was coming. I mean, often when people get fired, they at least see the handwriting on the wall. This totally blindsided me. I didn't know there was anything wrong. And then I was mad at these other guys who were jealous that I got hired into the role instead of them, and they'd kind of been bad-mouthing me for eight months anyway, and I was mad at them. It was their fault. And I was mad at the board because the board of directors should have been putting pressure on Richard to move into transition plan. I was mad at everybody. I was mad at my wife. I was mad at the dog. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong, but I just had to be mad at everybody. I was mad at God again, again because I felt like that he had put me in a place of influence and then taken it away from me. Richard, about two weeks later, uh, called me and said, there is a organization out in LA in Thousand Oaks that's looking for a new president. And it's kind of a mission group. And I know you lived in Turkey and I know you love missions. Maybe that'd be worth looking at. The dude that fired me introduced me to Christian Associates. When I showed up, it was a founder transition. I said no, because <laughs> that founder, Linus, didn't really have a plan either, like Richard didn't have a plan. But I fell in love with those people, and I said, how can I help you? And they said, we need help rebuilding our nonprofit operational infrastructure. We need help rebuilding the systems. So for five years, I just served the missionary uh, organization by rebuilding financial, communication, recruiting, human resources, IT and administration, all those missionary support services, training, and that was my job for five years. Linus had transitioned out of the founder role to another guy who then left, and the board hired me into the president position three years ago. Richard the guy that fired me from my dream job introduced me to a job I'm doing now that I can't imagine not having and has been, done more to change my life than any other role I've ever been in. What do you learn from that story about the pathway of maturity and how struggle can lead you forward? What do you learn from that? All right. Sounds like some good ideas out there. Tell me about it. What are some of your ideas of what you can learn from that kind of a workplace wipeout? And yeah. God won't rip you off, even though I felt that way. Right? Yeah. You know, I actually took that dream job because of how it made me look in my own eyes. Yeah, it was, I can tell you today, that was selfish ambition run amok, truly. Yeah, what do you think? God can use sinners. Are you talking about me or are you talking about Richard? Yes, both. Yeah. Yeah, your dream job may not be the best job for your faith. Yeah, what do you think? I 
you can quote the verse, God causes all things to work together for good. You can quote that all day long, but until you get fired and then you see something work out for good, that's not really tested. What do you think? Amen. Proverbs 16, 9, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. That was true. Yep. Yes. I didn't think I would ever lead another organization again. I didn't think I wanted to be in Christian ministry anymore if that's how they treated each other. It was the most humbling season And praise God, Jeff and Peter, my 71-year-old mentor and my 47-year-old buddy, came alongside me in that darkness. And they began to ask me questions like, what was your role in it? Or what did you do wrong? And what can you learn from this? Um, Truly, um, without them in community, I I don't think I'd be even in ministry anymore today. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we can't see God's plan. We can get angry about it because it's not our plan, but the Lord has a longer view and a higher vision for us. Yeah. Um, kind of like um, what God has for you is for you and for no one else. But um, I don't know. If I said um, kind of like God won't open a door that you're not ready for, but um, because of that, he opens the door that you need. Yeah. Yeah, he opened the right door at the right time. Even going into Christian Associates as an operations leader wasn't what I wanted, but it's, it was vital to gain the awareness and the trust of what God's doing in Global Mission. Last story, and then we're going to wrap up here for the morning. This is one of my uh, neighbor stories. I've shared this at a couple of lunch tables because it's one of the classic stories of getting it wrong, but it leading into investing in others. So as I've told you, I've got uh, 37 houses on our street And my desire living there is to be a spiritual influence, to be a pastor that they would never call pastor. Um, And when we moved there, um, people around in the neighborhood knew that I, you know, was a paid Christian and, you know, minister, professional Jesus follower, whatever you want to call it. They didn't know what I did, but they just knew I got paid to be in ministry. So, um, When we moved eight years ago, Molly would have been eight and Claire five, so much younger than they are now. And one Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoons are sacred in our home for nap time. So, you know, everyone quiet, lay down, close your mouth, and uh, don't, don't wake anybody up. If you wake somebody up, it's like poking a bear. I mean, it's really a bad scene. You wake somebody up for Sunday afternoon nap. Well, Molly and Claire were not napping that day. They went into the backyard and were jumping on the trampoline and going berserk and waking us up like crazy. And we shouted out the window, stop it, you know, be quiet. And they just kept going. And finally, I got so angry that I went, the anger's a theme, can you tell this? I went downstairs, busted out the back door, shouted at them, 
told them off. You get in your rooms. You shut your doors. You be quiet. You don't make another sound. I don't want to hear you till dinner. Of course, they, you know, girls, they burst into tears. And they're wailing all the way from the trampoline to the back door, you know, and I'm feeling kind of good about, you know, humbling them in such a godly fashion. And as they're going up to their rooms, I'm standing on the, like, this is the porch. I'm standing on the back porch cooling off. I'm like, man, that felt good. You know, they woke me up four times, and now they're going to be quiet till dinner, and that's good. I look up. Every one of my neighbors is in their backyard all the way around. Oh my gosh, the very people I'm trying to invest in that live around me for the sake of Jesus just heard me go ballistic on my two daughters. Everything I've been trying to model for them of being a good dad and being a good husband and being a great neighbor, flushed. Now, we'd only been living there about a year, so I didn't know a lot of my neighbors at a real personal level. I just knew them at an acquaintance level. But I couldn't live with that being the end of the story. So I went around to house after house within the next week and just said, look, I just want you to know that I am sorry for what happened. I apologize to my daughters and I just want to apologize to you as a neighbor. That's not the kind of fathering that I want to live. And it's not the kind of neighbor I want to be. And I just ask for your forgiveness. Within two months of having those apology conversations, I had three gospel conversations with those neighbors. Three. Coming at a time when they were either going through a hardship or struggle, or they wanted to know more about faith. My question to you is this. What do you learn about mission and the invested life by admitting your failure. Not by getting it right, but by getting it wrong. What do you learn? Just a few minutes is all we have. Okay, let's finish up. The worship team's got a few more songs for us to end in worship, and I don't want to take their time. So what are a couple of things that you could learn from failure as a catalyst to investing in people's life? What do you think? What do you learn? Yeah. common ground, we all screw it up. Does the Christian do anything different when they screw it up? What were you going to say? Uh, God uses us in spite of ourselves. Yeah. What else? It humanizes our mission. Humanizes our mission. They can relate to somebody that gets it wrong like that. Yeah. Yes. Last one over here, yeah. Our goal in sharing with others isn't to show people how awesome we are, it's to show them how awesome Jesus is. Yeah. And his work in your life. One guy actually told me, um, you asking me for forgiveness 
told me that I had a problem forgiving people. So thank you for asking for forgiveness because now I feel like I need to go ask somebody else's forgiveness. Hey, listen, here's how I want to conclude this. I just want to tell you this, that as you grow as a disciple or a follower of Christ, do it together, not alone. Integrate it into every aspect of your life. And know that sharing the road in fellowship, in community, is the pathway to maturity. Move into maturity throughout your faith. And uh, we'll just pray that God blesses that. Lord, as we move into our time of worship and responding and prayer, I pray that um, you would find in our hearts a commitment to grow up, to keep on, to not give up and to persevere, to look for your guiding voice, to interpret and explain and instruct. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Be glorified in our lives in Jesus' name.